Well, good morning, 11 a.m. The sun's out. Amen. Right? And all the Washingtonians are like, here we are, we're new people, right? It was a long winter. I don't even know if we had a spring, but summer's almost here, right? So uh, we're glad you're in God's house. And uh, my name's Taylor, one of the pastors here, privileged to share God's word. How many know every time we open up God's word, he wants to speak to us, right? He wants to teach us and show us. And so uh, glad you're here. It should be done in the next three hours, if that's okay. And uh, so hopefully you have it blocked out. No, 30 minutes and just believe God wants to speak to us. Um, we're in a series called Faith Under Pressure. And we're talking about the seven churches in Revelation that uh, John was on the island of Patmos and Jesus revealed this vision to him to the seven churches. So I invite you to stand to your feet if you would be so willing to. And uh, we, we do this at Calvary just as a reminder to respect the word. And as we stand for God's word, it's because we're not here for human wisdom. We're not here uh, to hear any, really anything I have to say, but everything that the word of God has to say. And so that's what our teacher is this morning. Before I just read this, I love that Revelation's a prophetic book. And, and, and prophetic means it just speaks into the future. And so other word, in other words, when John revealed this vision from, from Jesus... Jesus revealed his vision to John. It was, a, it was a vision for the church in Pergamum, which we're going to read today. But because it's prophetic, stay with me, it's for the church today. And everything in Revelation to these seven churches is relevant for the church today. So just as it's to the church in Pergamum, because it's prophetic, it's relevant for the church in Sumner. Amen? And so this is what we read. It's got some language. You're going to be like, I have no idea what half of those things mean. I'm going to try my best to explain it this morning. Revelation chapter 2 verse 12 says this, and the, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You there hold the teaching of Balaam who taught to Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except for the one who receives it. I believe in this message from Jesus to the church in Pergamum. He has a commendation and encouragement for them. He has a correction for them. And then he has some promises that if they'll correct their lives, he will promise them some things. We're going to talk about those three things this morning. Let's pray. Lord, may your word speak. Thank you that it's living and active. Lord, I thank you that when we gather around your word, your spirit shows up. And it's in these moments that we just remember that the Holy Spirit is the teacher with the power of the word of God. And so help shape our hearts not to just be hearers, but to be doers. May the word fall on good soil this morning. Anything going on in our heart in these moments, we just repent. We just say, Lord, would you just soften the soil of our hearts so we could be more like you. And Lord, as we look at the landscape of the community you've called us to and the world that you've called us to live and be the church and the light of Christ, we do sense that there's brokenness and there's hurt and there's anger and there's disunity. And it can be discouraging at times, Lord, to see. But at the end of the day, we as 
the sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, the light of Christ, the, the church, in these times, for such a time as this, we pray you'd shape us as people of hope so that in dark and discouraging times, there might be a light that shines this different and it's the church of Jesus Christ. May it be so in these moments that you shape us towards that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You may be seated this morning. My wife and I, uh, next month, we celebrate five years of marriage, which is an incredible thing. Yeah, we can celebrate that. And um, one of the first things that we, we learned uh, right away was a word that uh, maybe many of you have heard. It's this word compromise, right? Show of hands, who's used the word compromise? Okay, about 25% of marriages. So that's discouraging a little bit this morning. No, I think we've all, if, if you've been married or been in a relationship or a friendship or anything like that, you've understood this word, this word compromise. In fact, this happened really early on in our marriage. Uh, we had just got married and we had this little apartment here in Sumner and I come home and she had made seafood. She had made salmon for dinner and you're gonna judge me and just like the last two services had, have, uh, I don't like seafood. I really don't. I, and uh, I know everyone's going, yes, we have some friends here. Let's go, Jesse, right? There's two of us out of 500, right? We're good, right? And, um, and so uh, I come home and, and like the apartment had smelled like salmon and I was like, oh no, this is not a good thing, Right. And so we, you know, navigated that and whatever. And I said, okay, here's the, here's the compromise. Everyone say compromise. <sighs> the compromise is that any, anytime we eat out, you can order salmon anytime you want. I don't care how expensive it is, you can have salmon. But it, at our house, we won't, that's been the compromise for us. It's been an expensive few years eating out, that's for sure. Uh, but... It's a compromise, right? These, are, these happen all through our marriages. How many, how many know when you go on vacation, opposites attract? And so oftentimes in your, in your vacations, you go, one of you wants to just rest, sit by the pool and just chill. And then the other one's like, I want to explore, right? Is that true in your marriage? One of you is like that compromise. When are you going to rest? When are you going to explore? How about, how about in our marriages and our families, holidays, right? It's like, Whose family do you go to? Do you go to Christmas here, Thanksgiving here? It takes, it takes compromise to navigate those things. This is a big one. And no one nudge the person next to you, but money, right? Money is a big one in marriages. Like when do you save? When do you spend? Uh, money can be a hot topic, can be controversial. Uh, how you spend the money though, you learn really quickly in marriages. It's about compromise. Uh, who cleans the house? Who does certain roles? Who does these things and who, and all these moments in, in, in our daily living, compromise is so important. How many know a strong marriage is really healthy than your marriage and my marriage and our relationships? We have compromise, amen? This is a good thing. But what I wanna speak to us about this morning, I'm just gonna tell you the message just right from the get-go. Compromise is good in marriage and relationships. Compromise is not good in our faith. In our spiritual walk with Jesus Christ, we are called to not compromise. In fact, in, the, in this series, Faith Under Pressure, we've been talking about a number of pressure moments on the early church, on the church in Rome. And Pastor Daniel started two weeks ago on the church in Ephesus. It was this pressure to leave their first love. Pastor Ray last week talked about the church in Smyrna. It was the pressure that when persecution comes. And this week, as we're talk, looking at the church in Pergamum, it's the pressure to complacency. Sorry, not complacency. It's the pressure to compromise. Everyone say compromise. The C words, I got them confused in my mind, right? Pressure to compromise. Probably complacency too, if we're honest about it, right? 
And, and, and this is an important book for us today. And I'm just gonna go just verse by verse through this. I feel like there's some things that God wants to speak to us today. Verse 12, we read, I'm gonna read it one more time. We're talking about compromise this morning. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the two-edged sword. Now you're probably like, what, is, what does this mean? This is an image that, we're, that the John, the writer, inspired by Jesus, wants us to get. Uh, in Pergamum, it was a big city. Uh, they, they had, the symbol was a sword in Pergamum. This was the symbol of the city. And one of the things that the, the leader of Pergamum under the Roman Empire could do is he had a right to capital punishment. In other words, not everyone had, was able to do that, but in Pergamum, because it was such a significant political city, the leader could decide capital punishment. And, and so right away in Revelation chapter two, Jesus is making his authority, everyone say authority. Jesus is making his authority known right away that in the battle for Pergamum, you think it's about the Roman leader and the, and the power of the sword that the Roman leader has. Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's actually not about a physical sword, it's about the sword and I am the sword, Jesus says. He's making clear that authority and assertion is gonna come from, it's gonna come from him, not from Roman leadership, though it's significant to you, but it's gonna come from Jesus Christ. And, and I just say on a side note, don't ever underestimate the authority of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think in our lives, we think, oh, Jesus, Pastor Ray says this phrase a lot, I think about. Sometimes we think that Jesus might be asleep or what's going on. Make no mistake about it, Jesus is not asleep. Jesus is well aware of what's going on. In fact, the picture we get in Revelation, we read it when Pastor Ray opened the series in Revelation chapter one, that right in the middle of the lampstands, right in the middle of the churches is Jesus. He's here. He knows what's going on in his church. He's not unaware. And how many know Jesus is righteous? He's gonna have his way in his church. And so we see this right away that he who has the sharp two-edged sword really is Jesus. And in the midst of this, uh, Jesus gives him a commendation. Jesus gives him a commendation. In fact, let's read verse 13. I'm gonna skip a verse, verse 13, sorry, upstairs. It says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Could you imagine if that's how people knew your city. <laughs> yeah, I live in Sumner where Satan's throne is, right? Welcome to my city. Uh, this is great. This is Pergamum. And Jesus gives a commendation. That word means an encouragement. Jesus gives an encouragement to say, I know, I know that where you're living is difficult. What, what's Pergamum? In fact, I have, I have a few pictures I'd love to show you to remind you that Pergamum is a real place. Um, this, this is the amphitheater. Uh, seats somewhere between 10 or 15,000 people, uh, overlooks the, the entire region there. Uh, this is called the Acopolis. It's the upper city in Pergamum. It was rested on a hill. And uh, what a beautiful site, huh? Pretty cool area. Go to, go to the next slide if you would for me. Now this, this white structure, I feel like a tour guide, like welcome to <laughs> tours. Here we are. Uh, welcome to Pergamum. Here we are. And this, that white thing is the amphitheater we just saw. This was a, a picture of what this city would have looked like, on the upper hill anyway. What a beautiful, can we just acknowledge? Beautiful, right? Some of these buildings, you can just almost picture them and imagine them, what they would have looked like in person. Uh, each one of these buildings though, and this is why I wanna give you this picture, each one of these buildings is, at least a lot of them are a, a temple or an altar to a lowercase g god. So in, in Roman thought, there's Greek mythology, which many different gods for many different spheres of life. In fact, let me just share with you a number of them. The first one, one of these temples from this picture, it might be dedicated to Asclepios. I'm not gonna make you say that word, but interesting. 
goddess, an interesting god. This is a lowercase god to who was the god of healing in this culture they perceived. I want you to imagine that the, the, the god of Asclepios was, in a, was seen to be, or the temple that this represented, was like modern day University of Washington vibes. In, in other words, all the doctors would go, all the smartest people in the world. If you wanted healing or knowledge or you wanted just the, the understanding of what the medical world was, the place to be in Rome, in this area, was the temple of Asclepios. Huge, over five acres. I mean, you could just think uh, that on this thing, it was probably the biggest portion. I don't know which building it was on this map, but probably the biggest portion of here was the, was the temple dedicated to Asclepios. And, and, and catch this. Some of you are just gonna, you're gonna get a kick out of this. One of the, one of the uh, ways that they believed healing happened with the God of Asclepios was uh, through, through snakes. And Remember, we're talking about the, the city where the throne of Satan is. Don't forget that in the midst of all of this. One of the ways that they believed healing was was through a touch of a snake. And so if you weren't getting healed, they would put you in a room and they would unleash the non-harmful -harm, snakes over your body. And they believe, I know you're like, don't sign me up for that. I know, me either. And this, this was a, a scene as a, as a healing thing when the, when the snake touched a sick person. It was like a touch from the God of Asclepios. This making sense this morning? Remember, we're talking about the throne where Satan lives. Could this have been the throne where Satan lives? What do we know in scripture about Satan? He's the serpent. Serpent means snake. Interesting, right? What if one of these temples dedicated to one of the Greek gods was Zeus? You've heard of Zeus before? It's the second one I want to talk about. The city Jesus calls the throne where Satan lives. Zeus had the largest temple. In fact, I think there's a picture of Zeus's temple. Huge, right? Uh, it would have been 150 feet long, five stories high. This was a place you could go and you could, you could lay down a sacrifice on the altar of Zeus. If he needed power, Zeus was known as the king of kings of the Roman gods. Power, the throne where Satan lives. Many people would say this was the throne where Satan lives. Number, number three, maybe one of the, the gods or goddesses is a temple dedicated to the goddess of Athena. Athena was the goddess of wisdom and strategy. I don't have a picture for this one, but the goddess of wisdom and strategy. Uh, she was famous for many things, but one of them was her library. She had the biggest library in the Roman era. Magnificent. There were over 200,000 scrolls. This was a university city. This is a place people would go to get educated. And the city was enamored with ideas. They were enamored with thoughts. So if you needed wisdom for your life, if you wanted to learn or grow or find some strategy to fight a war, you would go to the goddess of Athena and she would help give you wisdom. You would lay a sacrifice onto her throne. Could this be the throne where Satan lives? Maybe. How about the temple, just two more, the temple dedicated to Demeter. If you, if you were a farmer or someone who worked in agriculture and you needed a good food or a good crop for that year, you would go lay a sacrifice in the temple and the altar of Demeter and that would be a, a promise per se that you would have a good crop that year. This last one is interesting to me. A temple of Dionysus. This is the god of party. And, lower, and 
just think like, as I was studying about it, think like spring break and all of its debauchery, right? The negative side of that. This is the temple dedicated to Dionysus. Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Which one's Satan's throne? I don't know, maybe the temple to Zeus, maybe the temple to Asclepios, maybe, I don't know. But let me just propose to you this morning that maybe all of them were the throne where Satan lives. You see, I think we gotta think of Pergamum like modern day New York or modern day Los Angeles or modern day Washington, D.C., where people go seeking answers, seeking dreams, speaking a future, seeking a powerful uh, understanding would go to these places. For many, it was a vacation spot. It was a, a spot to go and see. It was the center of political and social power. If you could get to Pergamum, you could get to a place where you could have a lot of leeway. You could learn some influence. You could meet the right people. It was the place where the average tourist would come in. And if it was today, the average tourist would take selfies and post on Instagram and, and say, I've been, I've been to Pergamum. Look, I've been here. I made it. It's, it's the, it's, it would be able to show these massive, incredible buildings. It would be known all throughout our world. Like if you've been there, I've been there, I've been there, I've been there. But what, what, what many saw as amazing sights, Jesus saw as places of idolatry. And Jesus grieved. He grieved. Because Jesus understood that he knew that this, this small church in Pergamum was actually living in the midst of Satan's headquarters, where, where there was a God of food, and there was a God of enjoyment, and there was a God of security and of healing. And, and they, the, Jesus knew they were in a battle that, that Jesus says, to me, you'll come and find wisdom, yet they had the largest library in the world they could go to. Jesus says, to me, you can come and find healing, yet they have the God of healing. Jesus says, you can come and you can, you can find the King of Kings in Jesus, yet you have the temple of Zeus. They had all these things. Make, make no mistake about this. There was a tension that the followers of Jesus in Pergamum felt, and Jesus knew this, and he commends them for it. He says, way to go. He says, in the midst of this really difficult culture, you're doing a great job. In fact, this is what I think really helps us understand what Pergamum was about. He says, here, here pitched a battle. This is by John, John Stott. Here pitched a battle was being fought where the soldiers in Pergamum, they weren't men, but they were ideas. And Jesus knew that there was a conflict going on in their, in their mind. It's a complicated place to live. But look what he says to them. Next verse down in, in Romans or Revelation chapter two, it says, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not, amen, you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. Yeah, in that place where Satan dwells. Jesus is commending them. He's saying, church, way to go in the midst of this. And, and Antipas, you're like, who's that guy? He was, he was a martyr for the faith. Uh, Antipas, you know that big uh, amphitheater I showed you? Antipas was taken in front of all the people of Pergamum and killed for his faith. Gruesome death, actually. I'll, I'll bear you the details. Everyone would have seen this and it would have been a moment for Rome to flex their muscle. Say, so don't worship Jesus. And Jesus commends this church. Even in the midst of you guys watching Antipas be murdered for his faith, you've still followed me. You still have not denied my name. Can we just, can we just take a moment? I just wanna just pause here. How many know sometimes in, in ministry, sometimes in the church, sometimes in the world, we just gotta take a pause and encourage people. 
Man, I just wanna encourage you this, this morning. Uh, if you in your life and your family, you're putting Jesus first. If, if you're attempting to live the light of Christ in a really tough culture, if you're, if you're praying for your kids and you're, you're putting church a priority on your life, like I know so many of you are, and you're, you're reading the word and you're doing these things to help center your faith and you're holding fast in a tough culture, a tough workplace. I know so many of us, like it's such a tension, just like the church in Pergamum, to go to your workplace and to be the light of Christ and to be the presence of Christ. And I think sometimes we, we just get so busy busy maybe beating ourselves up because we're not good enough or we're not doing enough. And I think every once in a while, it's just good to like pause and say like, like way to go. <laughs> because maybe in the midst of all the things that you're doing in your life, you are actually pleasing Christ with your life. Can we just encourage every, every, like each other every once in a while? I love what Paul says. I just wanna encourage you. This is what Paul says in uh, Ephesians. He says, encouragement is supposed to be like the bedrock of the church. In fact, like we, when we gather in moments like this, I think encouragement's like one of the key reasons why we come, to be here and to like encourage one another. In fact, Paul speaks of it this way. He says, encouragement is like brick by brick that builds up your spiritual self. It's like when someone encourages you with the promise of God or someone encourages you, says, hey, I, I see what God's doing in you. Hey, I know it's tough at your workplace, but I know you're praying for your coworkers and someone encourages you. Hey, I know parenting's hard and all the parents say amen, but you're doing a great job. You're showing up, you're praying for your kid. Uh, you're not perfect, but you're on a, a journey and you're trying your best and you're allowing the spirit of God to come in. And we just encourage each other brick by brick. How many know that honors the heart of God? And I just think that like as we, we're gonna go on and don't worry, Jesus is gonna have a correction for his church in Pergamum. But before I move on, like, why does all the bad stuff have to get the light all the time? <laughs> Man, there's incredible stories happening in this room. There's incredible stories of testimony. Some of you are here and God has changed your life at Calvary and you're on a journey of new life change. We should give God praise for that. Uh, some, some of us, yeah, we can thank God for that. Like... We have, we have so many stories across our church we can share, new jobs, new opportunities, people sharing the light of Christ. I think we've got to make sure the good stuff sometimes gets the light sometimes, amen? And this is what Jesus, he commends them for this. I mean, consider this. Can, you just, can we just, just pause and say, it is a miracle from God that the fact that there was a church in Pergamum. <laughs> I mean, just looking at the city and the things we talked about, Jesus is good and he commends this church for standing strong in the midst of it. But... It does take a bit of a turn here. He says, I know many of you are standing strong. Many of you are living in the faith. Many of you are not denying my name, but there are some of you that need a bit of a correction. So he commands, then he corrects. And this is what it says in verse 14. But I do have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to the idols, and practice sexual immorality. Verse 15, so also, you also have some of you who are holding teaching of the Nicolaitans. What does this mean? Jesus is giving a correction. You might be like, I don't know who Balaam is. I don't know who Balak is. I don't know who this Nicolaitan people are. I don't even know if you're saying Nicolaitan right, and I don't know if I am either, right? But let me, let me try and explain what this, what this means. When I, it took me a bit of study to try and understand what this really means. Who's, who's Balaam? Uh, Balaam is found in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 25. And I gotta say, Numbers gets a bad rap sometimes, right? Like many of us are like, I'm gonna go read Numbers today. Uh, but I'd encourage you to make sure you, you, you do read books like Numbers because they tell incredible stories about the people of Israel. And in particular, Numbers is telling a lot of stories about the people of Israel after they've left 
slavery, left Egypt, and they're entering into their promised land. And there's a number of different things that happen to the people of Israel. And the center, the climactic story of Numbers is this Numbers 25 with Balaam. And here's what Israel's doing. Israel's conquering cities. They're, they're, they've been freed from captivity and they're conquering cities and they're, they're crushing it, man. Like they're, they're going from one city to the next. God's blessing is on them. And, and could you imagine if you were another one of the cities in this area and all of a sudden Israel's on their way towards your city, you're like, this is not gonna be good for us, right? And so this is the case with Moab. Everyone say Moab. This is the case with Moab. Moab is on is living their life and Israel comes and sets up some tents right outside of their border. So they know what's about to happen to them. So the leader of Moab is like, okay, what are we gonna do? He's like, I have an idea. I'm gonna send a prophet. I'm gonna pay a prophet to go to the top of the mountain and to speak curses over Israel. Are you with me? Because we don't want them to conquer us. So Moab sends this prophet. His name is Balaam. He said, Balaam, go to the mountain and speak curses over Israel. Israel. So Baum goes up there. And this is so funny. The Bible is so funny at times, right? There's some comedic elements where God just reminds us he's God. And so Baum goes up there and he's like about to speak this curse over Israel. And like he just begins to open his mouth and only blessings come out. <laughs> God's like, God's like, you're not going to curse my people. So he goes and he's, he's like, I'm going to curse those people. And then like a blessing comes out. And then happens the second time. I'm going to try and curse them. And then a blessing comes out. Like, could you just, you have to get the picture of what's going on here. And so he gets frustrated, as many of you and I would be. We've been paid something to go do. We couldn't do it. So he goes back to uh, the leader of Moab and says, hey, I, I couldn't do that. Uh, God intervened. I can only speak blessings. And, and so he comes up with another scheme. And this is what I need you to see this morning. He says, I can't, I can't curse them with my mouth, but I might be able to compromise. I would say Compromise. I might be able to get them to compromise their faith. This is how it relates to Revelation chapter two. This is what Balaam does to the people of Israel. Balaam gets some of the Moabite women and he sends them across the border with the task of compromising the faith and the morals and the morality of the people of Israel. This is the story of Balaam and it works. People of Israel, they compromise their integrity and God gets mad at the people of Israel. Balaam schemes them slowly, quietly, seducing them into sexual sin and turning them to the idolatry that they once ran from and were not living in, but because they were compromised, they led back into it. So this is Balaam. And who's this Nicolaitan guy? Similar story. He was a church deacon who essentially, and you can read this in Acts chapter six, he essentially led the church back into sexual immorality, compromised their integrity, so what's, what's the correction to the church in Pergamum? The correction is that they have compromised their faith. Many of them have compromised their values. Just like the church in Ephesus, the message was that they had left their first love. Just like the message to the church in Smyrna was that they had to, to live under persecution. The message to the church in Pergamum is the call to not compromise, the call to conquer compromise. How do they compromise? We read some of it. We've talked about some of it. They, they compromised with the pagan culture. They had one foot in culture and one foot with Christ. They, they compromised their morality. The church in Pergamum did. They, they compromised in their teaching and their understanding. I mean, could, 
Could you just imagine living in Pergamum? By the way, one of the, I didn't share this at any other services, so this is like free for the 11 a.m. Let's go. <laughs> one, of the, one of the ways that they would get culture into the people is they would do drama. And so if there was a cultural idea they were trying to get accomplished in a culture, they would just do drama plays. And that big amphitheater I showed you, if there were certain things going on, they would just, they put in a drama and everyone would go watch it. And how many know that would start turning into the culture? It's almost like Netflix. It's almost like, right? This is what happens at times. If you get it in certain media, it gets into the culture. So this is what happens. Could you just imagine living in Pergamum? I mean, try and just live there for a second. I mean, it's easy to live in Sumner, Washington and to kind of think about these things, but like really take your mind back that every day as you're walking through, you're seeing this temple and you're seeing this temple and you're seeing this temple and the temptation that maybe your kids get sick well, I, I, I guess I'm gonna do anything. I might go to the temple of healing. Compromise your faith. Maybe your farm, maybe your livelihood isn't going well. So the temptation to compromise and say, well, I might just try the things of the world to see if it works. Can we just feel the tension that these people must have been feeling? And Jesus says, don't, don't compromise these things. But here's the deal. We, we compromise, don't we? And I don't think we compromise on the big things a lot of times. I think, I, I, I think most of us can agree on the gospel. I think most of us can agree on the word of God. We, we might disagree on certain things in the word of God, but from the, the major things in the word of God, we agree on. Most of us, we, we agree that this, this, like a Sunday morning and the faithful preaching of the word is important, amen? We, we agree on that. We agree that community is important. We agree the lordship of Christ. We agree about the Holy Spirit. We agree about the purpose of worship. We can agree on all these things. Like we're not gonna compromise those things, but we do compromise in our lives. We compromise by indulging in our own desires. We, we compromise by maybe the sin of the lust of the eyes or the lust of the flesh or the pride of life. We compromise. We compromise when we get lazy around God's word and, and, we, and we just read it to read it or we get ignorant to God's word and, and we don't even attempt to understand it and we, we, we fall into maybe what so many of our culture and so many even in the church, capital C church at large, this idea of biblical illiteracy, mostly because we are just not willing to study and to dig in and to dig deep into what God's word says. So we compromise the truth of scripture because of laziness. Speaking to myself this morning, we compromise with our false thinking. I guess Romans 12 says, like, renew your mind daily. Well, we allow the world to shape our mind, not the word of God. And here's the thing. Maybe this just gives you something to think about. You have to be really careful in your life in moments of temptation, our moments of insecurity, our moments of jealousy, our moments of fear, because usually in these moments of insecurity, jealousy, fear, temptation, these are the moments when we are going to easily slip into something of compromise. And compromise is a slippery slope. Are you with me this morning? <laughs> compromise is a slippery slope. It's dangerous because it's subtle. Because here's the thing, compromise by definition, Compromise by definition. It, it doesn't just say comprehensive surrender to the worldly ways or idea. It's not saying that you're leaving Jesus, but what, 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 what compromise does is it says that you can have Jesus and the world. Compromise, it accommodates the world. Com compromise says, oh, there's room for more than one God on the shelf of my life. 
Compromise says, oh, I can worship more than just one Jesus because what's really the harm? This is what compromise does. It happens slowly and it happens little bits at a time. Let me just tell you, small compromises in your life make big differences. <laughs> it's the small things. It's the, oh, it's, not, it's just a little sin. It's not that big of a deal. But then going without repenting, it becomes a bigger sin. Compromise is, oh, I, I'm too busy to read the word today. And then it turns into two days. And then it turns into three days. And then it turns into a week. And then it turns, we've all been there, right? It's little compromises. It's, it's the little compromises like, oh, this doesn't really matter. I can put myself in this scenario or this situation. I'm, I'm strong enough. How many know that's a compromise in our lives? We've got to be the types of people that say the little compromises in our lives make really big differences eventually. And so we have to make the big, the little things a big deal. In fact, I love what it says in Song of Solomon. Uh, the, the writer says, it's actually the, the two little foxes that run through the vineyard is actually what destroys the whole vineyard. It's the little things that, that jump through and just ruin different parts of our lives. And Jesus calls for none of that. Jesus is not saying, I want one foot here and one foot here. Jesus is saying, I want you to get off the fence. I either want you to be all in or not. This is the call of Jesus. In fact, I love what it says in James 4. I don't actually love what it says. It's a tough thing. But it's, it's important for us to hear what it says in James 4. It says this. It says, you adulterous people. By the way, this word adulterous is important because you know Pergamum actually means marriage. And so the question was, are they gonna be married to the world? Or are they gonna be committed to Christ? You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Hello. <laughs> Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world, what is it? They become an enemy of God. This is a tough, this is a tough message because we're all guilty of compromise in some way. We're all guilty of compromise, but here's the promise. That's where I'm getting ready to land the plane. There is a promise to those that conquer compromise. There's a promise to those that say, I'm not gonna compromise things in my life. I love what it says in Revelation chapter two, verse 16 through 17. Therefore, repent. Everything in the spiritual life starts with repentance. It says, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The sword of my mouth, that's the word of God, the living word of God, the word of God that, that pierces flesh and blood. This is what we read in Hebrews. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Catch this. Those that conquer, compromise. Those that choose not to compromise, he'll give three things. Hidden manna, a white stone with a new name on it, and the, the, the stone that he gives, no one will know except for the one who receives it. So three things. Hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. These are the things that God promises. Jesus promises the church in Pergamum if they will conquer compromise in their life. Hidden manna, what's hidden manna? Hidden manna is God's provision. If you, if you will go all in to God's way and trust God's way of provision, he will always provide you hidden manna. Manna is this concept of, in the Old Testament of God always providing just enough at the right moment of food for the people of Israel. And so the promise, if you'll conquer compromise, is that you'll always have what you need. You see, I think this is a big one because so many of us, and I'm including myself in this, we think in our lives, oh, well, it's, it's God's way, plus like I need to make sure that I kind of do my way a little bit. Like financially, I know God's gonna provide, but like I also should probably worry about it and do a little bit of my own worrying here, set my own path. Vocationally, maybe we think, 
in our, in our mind, we can say, oh, God's gonna provide, but in our hearts, sometimes we like, we worry and we get anxious and I still gotta kind of try and make my own path in my own way. The promise of, the promise of God is that if you'll comp- conquer compromise and you'll just go all in and say, God's way is better. God's got my best intentions in mind. He created me with a purpose. He created me with a calling. He's gonna put me on my path I'm supposed to go on. I'm just gonna do first things first. I'm gonna seek first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness. And he's gonna add the things to my life that I need. I'm, I'm not gonna worry about 20 steps down the road. I'm just gonna take one step at a time. And if we do this, the promises, and we don't compromise with what the world says, and we focus on Jesus, the promises, he'll take care of us every step of the way. Hidden manna. Take a deep breath into that today. God's got us. But if you're one foot in culture and one foot in the way of Jesus, you'll never find the path. You'll always be confused. Second thing we prom- were promised is a white stone. This is a reference to something that was in their culture that if you won something, like think of like if you won a Super Bowl, like there was a lot of kind of games in this time. And if you won something, one of your, you would win like this stone. Think of like if you won a Super Bowl ring, this is like what the white stone represented. And it could be used as a ticket. So like if you won, if you through something, you won a white stone, like you could use it as a ticket to get into a place. So think of like this white stone, it really is God's invitation. Like God invites you into the banquet room. God invites you into this place. This white stone could be used as an acquittal to get you out of like a, a, a judgment type moment. Like you could say, I have a white stone and like they wouldn't judge you. So the white stone is a big deal. And what would be on that white stone would be a new name, a new name. And on, on that name is the name just you and Jesus know. So if you'll conquer compromise, God's provision, God's invitation here and into eternity, and yes, a new name, a reference to your identity in Christ, an identity that you can't earn, but you can only receive. And I think in compromise, we attempt to earn our identity based upon the things of the world. And God is telling us as the church today, stop striving, stop seeking to the church in Pergamum. You compromising your life because you're trying to look like the world and also trying to follow Christ. The call is, Follow Christ and focus on his intention and don't so, focus so much on what the world says. So if you're here this morning, have you lost your purity? Christ has come back. He'll wash you clean, give you a white stone. Are you here this morning and you've lost your intimacy with Jesus? You've lost your intimacy with God? Well, the call is this morning, come home. He's waiting for you to come back. There's an invitation. He gives you a white stone this morning, invitation back to his presence. Have you lost your nourishment? Are you worried? Are you anxious? Christ says, come back. I'll give you hidden manna. I'll give you the nourishment that your soul's really looking for. Have you lost your focus? Christ says, yeah, come back. I'll give you new ears to listen to my voice. This morning, the church in Pergamum there was a commendation and encouragement in the midst of a tough culture. There was a portion of them living so faithful to Christ. But yes, a correction because so many of them were living in compromise. But then there was a promise to those that conquer compromise. Yes, it was, it was hidden man. It was God's provision. It was a white stone. Yes, it was God's invitation. And yes, on that white stone would be a new name. Yes, that's your and my name, our identity in Christ. Not what the world says, our identity in Christ. This is the promise of the church of Pergamum. What will we do with what we've now heard? This is the question. We're gonna end with communion this morning. I think it's so fitting that we take a few moments to reflect and 
in a moment, the hosts are gonna come. We don't have the old communion awkward things anymore and everyone's like, amen, right? But we do have two, two cups as they pass it. Make sure you grab both cups. The bottom one will be a wafer and the top one is juice. And I'm asking you to take them, hold them for a few moments as the team sings over us. And then at the end of this song, I'll come up and I'll close this out and lead us in communion. Ushers, you guys can come. Let's sing together.